0: Good morning. Uh, Turn in your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 9. Um, Snowpocalypse is not going to stop the message I had prepared for last Sunday. (laughs) It's relevant to our time together afterward as well, so I think this will be good for us. Acts chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 10 through 19 together momentarily. So when I was a, um, a senior in high school teacher, Mrs. McCool had the class write a letter to ourselves that she planned to mail to us 20 years later. So the letter was meant to be a prediction of our lives, what we saw our lives doing personally and professionally 20 years from now. So we're in class, I'm 16 years old, and I write a letter to myself about what I think my life looks like when I am thirty-six. So I wrote down, you know, that I was married and I lived in a small town and I was an actuary professionally, an actuary. So does anybody know what that is? Okay, well, yeah, you're laughing at me because, I, well, you know why you're laughing at me, but that's okay. So my dad at the time was the president of a, of, a, of a health insurance company. So we sold policies like Medicare supplemental insurance and dental insurance and things like that. And so actuaries, as I understood it at the time of being 16 years of age were the math nerds who roughly calculated or helped calculate how much a company should charge for a certain amount of benefits and a certain kind of policy. And that's what I was going to do with my life. Doesn't that just sound super exciting? Um, that's, that's what I'm going to do. Now, Most, I, from what I can recall of that letter, most of the things in there did not come true at all. And I know none of you are surprised by that. Um, only marriage actually came true. And even that wasn't to the person that I presumed it would be when I was 16 years old. So why would Mrs. McCool go through that exercise? What was her intent? I I don't think that Mrs. McCool's intent was to get me to dream about my future. And I don't think that her goal was to inspire me to work really hard for something to fulfill my dreams, whatever those might be. And the reason I think that that wasn't her goal is because of her intent to mail the letter to me at the age of 36. What was she thinking that I would gain when, at the age of 36, I get a letter in the mail from me, like, and, and read about what I thought my life was like. What would she think I would gain from that moment? So I think Mrs. McCool understood something that few, if any, juniors in high school understand. But that she very much wanted us to understand. I think Mrs. McCool wanted to subtly but very effectively speak against the normal advice That we get when we are young and we get to that point where we're about to embark out in the world on our own. And that advice is this, that whatever we put our minds to, we can accomplish. That not only are we responsible for our choices, but we are sovereign over our direction. That's the world's counsel. Now, that counsel can be helpful to agree. Like, I've got, I, Trey and I just went to look at two colleges this weekend together, he and I, and there's there's that, like, the world is your oyster kind of thing that goes through your mind when you start talking about sending your son off or your daughter off to college and all that. Like I, So I get that there's some good in the sense of wanting to inspire and, and, and encourage somebody to think big and, and do hard things and all that. I, I get that, but... So that, that council can have a place, but it's not completely true. We, we are responsible for our choices, but we don't need to pretend that whatever choices we make automatically lead to the consequences that we expect. We're responsible, but we're not sovereign. I think Mrs. McCool absolutely understood this. I think she understood that there are far greater powers at work in our, than our choices. And that life, regardless of our intentions, has a way of going just in crazy directions that we might expect or even want to create. And that truth, not that we can create something big if we put our minds to it, but the truth that we are part of something that's so much bigger than ourselves and can participate in it, that is very liberating, very inspiring, and far more beautiful. So if you're 40 years old or older, you probably get this by now. Like, I, we say this in our house all the time. We are not in charge of our lives. We're responsible people for our choices. But we're not in charge of our lives. The proof is in my life since I wrote that letter when I was 16. I was, that summer, between my junior and senior year, and I wish, went on a mission trip with our youth group. It was very transformational. And I was asked to give a, a talk to the Wednesday night prayer supper Adults and I I took that as an opportunity to write a 17 point sermon. Why would I do that? I was why would I do that? This led to leadership opportunities in the youth group throughout the year This led to a summer mission trip after my senior year where our Minister of Music back went out two weeks prior to the trip so I was thrown into the role of conductor and leading the musical. This is back when youth groups traveled together and did musicals and did VBSs and all this kind of stuff. And here I am conducting this whole thing. And so I was sure in that moment that the Lord was calling to ministry, and I believe he was. And I was also very sure in that moment that I was going to be a worship pastor. So I went to Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina to major in music, and as it turns out, I hate studying music, and I'm not any good at it at all compared to the people who are paid to go to Furman University and do music, and I had a religion professor come to me, he hear me give a little talk at the Baptist student ministry one, one Tuesday night, and the student ministry worship at college started at 9 o'clock at night. I go to bed at 9 o'clock at night. It's crazy to think about. But I gave this little devotion because I was asked to, and the worship and, the, and the, one of the religion professors came up to me and he said, Rob, I don't know what you're doing with your life, but you, you have a gift for reading and teaching the, the Bible to, to some extent as an 18-year-old could. You need to be giving yourself to that. And it was a very transformative conversation, which led to student ministry opportunities um, in various churches around, which led to camp where I met Holly, which led to divinity school, which led to first ministry experiences in the church. And... It it led to a doctorate in leadership, and it led to a senior pastor, which led to discipleship consulting, which led to writing a book, which led to leading businesses at Lifeway, which led to technology management at Lifeway, and now it's led me here at the same time. You probably noticed that the word actuary never came up. So I was making all these choices for one path, and God kept correcting me, and making me choices for another. I am not in charge of my life. So how does this happen to us? Here's the question that I want us to really double down on today from the text. What are the things that take place in our lives that bring God's will about in our lives instead of our own? How does the, the intertwinement of God's will will and my responsibility and God's sovereignty and providence how does all that come together and and result in a life that I would never choose for myself in advance but it's one that I take full responsibility for how does that happen so I don't think the text that we're going to look at today answers all of those questions but it does illustrate a beautiful and delicate interweaving of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And it shows us the things that are taking place, that are at work in the life of the person. That's you, that's me. And in this text today, it's Saul and Ananias. So let's stand together and read Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 19. Acts 9, 10 through 19. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard from many people about this man how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has authority here from the chief priests to arrest all who call in your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name." Ananias went and entered the house. He placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road you were traveling, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And at once, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, you may be seeing him. So a couple weeks ago we looked at Acts, um, Acts chapter 8, which is a, um, a chapter that actually begins with this, this man named Saul that we've just read about. And Saul is a devout Jew, and he saw the early church that's unfolding in the book of Acts. He saw that as a threat to orthodoxy. And so Saul became a leader in the persecution of the church. In fact, if you go to the end of chapter 7... And the very beginning of chapter 8, there about those six verses right there, Saul is mentioned three times by Luke, all within the context of mentioning persecution, persecution, persecution. So Luke's very interested in you understanding the, the leadership and the intensity of Saul in this, in this particular role of persecution. And then at the very beginning of chapter 9, where we've just read, the story returns to Saul. Saul's on his way to a town of Damascus, and he's going there to arrest, and he's going there to imprison more Christians who had fled there. Saul has a plan for his life. He knows what he wants to do with his life right now, and he is quite sure that God approves of this. But then, look at with me in verse 3 through 6, three and three, yes, 3 through 6, something very supernatural happens. Saul, as he was traveling and was nearing Damascus, there was a light from heaven that suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 5. Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you were persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So do do you see... In the text, just those verses, that very subtle interplay between God's supreme lordship, there's a heavenly, glorious light, there's a command to get up and go, and you'll be told what you must do. So there's sovereignty. And then there's this human freedom and human responsibility. What you have, you have Saul questioning. You have Saul being asked to consider his motives. You you, you see him being responsible to fulfill this command. So you've got this interplay of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. So Saul does, or he has people do for him what the Lord has said to do. He's, He's led into the city. He's blind. He's exhausted. He's laid down. He's traumatized. He's either unable or unwilling to eat or drink for three days. Sounds like Isaiah, like in chapter 6, where he sees the Lord and he says, Woe is me, I am undone. That That is Saul's position in this text. And at some point in those three days, the Lord appears again, this time in a vision to a Christian man in Damascus, and his name is Ananias. And if you look at verse 11 again, the Lord gives Ananias a very specific command. Look at verse 11 and 12. Get up. Go to the street called Straight. Wouldn't it be really nice to live on a street (laughs) where it's just very clear about the nature of the street based on its name? I've yet to... This is a side note. I've yet to live on a street that I could say over the phone confidently to somebody taking an application or whatever, and they don't know. Now, how do you spell that? Like, I would just love to live on a street. Anyway, side note. All right. Go to a street called Straight to the house of Judas... And ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul since he's praying there. And in a vision, Saul has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Now let me ask you a question. What role did Ananias play in having this vision? Nothing. He's sitting there minding his own business and God's decision to reveal himself to Ananias and give him this command is solely the work of God. Now I would like to think that if God spoke to me in vision, I, in that moment, would fully recognize God's sovereignty and just do whatever he says. But that is not what Ananias does. Ananias is a bit like Moses when God told him to go to Egypt. Do you remember Moses gave God a list of reasons of why, all the reasons why it was a terrible idea. And Ananias does something very similar. Look at verse 13. Uh, Lord, Ananias said, I've heard from many people, because they're a better authority, about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. And here it is again. This interplay between God's supreme lordship. But God chooses to appear to Ananias and give him a command to go. And then you have this this behavior that is pure human freedom and pure human responsibility. Ananias seemingly informing God, questioning his wisdom. Do you understand what's at stake if I do what you tell me you want me to do? And God wins again. And yet in verse 15, he is so gracious, he even reveals to Ananias what it is that he's doing. Look at verse 15. The Lord said, go, and I'm going to tell you why. For this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles and to the kings and to the Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias goes and he lays his hands on Saul and he gets the Holy Spirit. He regains his sight. And just like the Ethiopian in chapter 8, and Philip, he's he's baptized instantly. So there's the narrative. And when I go through the narrative, I I want you to see the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, the the supreme lordship of God and, and human freedom and responsibility. And now I want to ask you the original questions. What are the things that take place and our lives that bring God's will about instead of our own. What takes place initially and in an ongoing way for all of this to happen? And I want to share with you from the text three, three things if you're taking notes. The first thing is this. It's communion with God. It's communion with God. Communion with God is one of the main things that takes place in our lives that brings His will about instead of our our own. Look at verse 11. God says to Ananias, Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas, ask for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Why? Since he is praying there. And the thing is, Saul was a Pharisee. He probably prayed seven to ten times a day out of religious duty. But consider the circumstances that he's in right now. This is not a normal day for Saul. He's just seen the Lord. He's just had a traumatic experience. It's affected his mind. It's it's affected his spirit. It's affected his body. He has no desire for food. He has no desire for water. He can only do one thing. He's praying. And we know this. But it is another thing to to say our prayers and to pray. You know the difference? When we, when we have our meals, we're sitting down together as a family, you, me, whatever, and you, you pause to ask the blessing, you know, if you will just reflect on the maybe even the last five times you did this, when you were saying the blessing and asking the blessing. When you were praying, saying the prayers or truly praying. And Paul, for the maybe for the first time in his life, in this moment, has communion with God. He has intimacy with God. He is praying to God. Now, Saul had a baptism of fire when it came to intimacy. He's been thrown right into the deep end, right? He's blind. He's just literally seen Jesus. But most of us are... In fact, I'm going to go out and say no other human being has had that experience. Most of us are much more like the disciples of Jesus who got to walk with God and, and got to talk with God incarnate, but they had a much slower, longer on-ramp into intimacy with God. They longed for it. We longed for it. But our on-ramp, it's not like we become a Christian and int- instantly we have this intimacy that, that we can have through our relationship with the Father. It's really interesting if you go back in Luke chapter 11. There's this story of the, the, the disciples of Jesus. They see him coming back from an extended period of time in prayer alone. And when he comes up to them, they say, Lord, teach us how to pray. The only time in the Gospels, that, of any of the Gospels, that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them something was in this moment. They did not ask a theological question. They did not ask an ethical question. They did not ask for strategy for how to grow their kingdom. They asked how to be intimate with God. So, uh, Eugene Peterson written several great books, one of which is called Tell It Slant. He has this, these two sentences. He said, they've been living with Jesus for three years, watching what he does, listening to what he says, and somehow they've come to the realization that following Jesus does not mean imitating what he does or repeating what he says. It means cultivating a relationship with God the way that they observe Jesus doing it. They want instruction. They want training in this deeply human and humanizing act. They want to do what Jesus does best. And so they ask, teach us to pray. And with a prayer the Lord's Prayer. and a parable and a comment, Jesus effectively emphasizes one thing about prayer. Do you know what it is? That it's relational, that it's intimate, that it's communion. And that's what we have here for Saul in Acts 9. It's the beginning of true communion with God. He's not saying his prayers. He's praying. And if you read through the book of Acts and all of Paul's letters, you'll see that Paul does not keep God at arm's length. He doesn't reach a point in his intimacy with God where there's some sort of balance of dependence on God, but I kind of got it too, got it on my own thing. That's not the way. The more he walks down this path of communion with God, the more dependent Paul becomes in his relationship to God. So communion with God is one of the main things that takes place in our life that brings about his will instead of our own. Number two, not just communion, but commission. I'm Baptist guys. These all start with C. I'm just going to end and let you know right now. You have a commission. One of the main things that takes place in our life that brings about God's will instead of our own, when we come into a relationship with him, he gives us a purpose. A commission is a purpose that requires sacrifice. Both of those are important. It's a purpose that requires sacrifice. And you can see this very plainly in the text that we've just read. Ananias is, in this moment, the Lord's instrument for bringing Saul out of his trauma. And Ananias is keenly aware of the risk. Saul is the Lord's instrument for taking the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles, the kings and the Israelites. And did you notice at the end of the sentence, <laughs> I will show him how much he must suffer for this. Notice in verse 15 how the Lord refers to Saul as his instrument. That's the Greek word skuos. It's the same word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, where he writes that we have this treasure in jars of clay, skuos, which infers that you and I are everyday empty vessels, everyday, not the fine china stuff, that you sometimes pull out. You know, all of you got that for your wedding that you've never used? That fine china that sits on display? That's not the stuff that we're talking about. This is the everyday, got it at Target, gets beaten up, but it works really well kind of vessel all the time that he uses, the Lord uses to execute and carry out his purpose, not our own. So to become a Christian is to gain a purpose that's not about you, but it's about Jesus. And therefore, it is one that will require sacrifice. We are constantly being emptied, just like Jesus was. Just think about Jesus' own life. Our mission for Jesus isn't going to look any different than Jesus' own life. If God had sent a very strong Messiah and we were saved by summing up our own strength then of course I can look around and feel like, hey, I must be, I'm better than other people. But God didn't send a Messiah like that. God sent a Messiah who quite literally sacrificed himself. And because he sacrificed himself and because he put us first and himself second and he gave himself up for our sake that we just sang about, that's now the operating principle on which we live our lives. So our conversion doesn't lead just to communion, but it also leads to this commission that it's a... It's a purpose that requires sacrifice. C.S. Lewis. Thank you, Weston, for that tie-in. From his book, The Problem of Pain. He says, Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. If you look for yourself, you will find in the long run hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But if you look for Christ, that is, if you set your life on mission for the same as Christ's mission, you will find him and you will get everything else good thrown in. You can see this in the text. Look at Ananias. Ananias wasn't put out by the fact that he had a vision. Wouldn't that scare you to death that you had a vision Ananias isn't put out by the fact that God of the universe actually spoke to him, In which, and, he, and Ananias is not freaked out by the fact that he's got supernatural powers to put his hands on someone and sight be restored to them. That doesn't freak him out. It's the sacrifice. It's the potential risk for suffering that Ananias would endure because of Saul. It was because of that that he was a little freaked out. What scared him about his commission wasn't how awesome it was going to be, it how terrible it possibly could be. It was going to require sacrifice. Which was, of course, small potatoes to what Paul really did endure. 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 27. Please go there, check it out. Forty times he was hit with lash. excuse me, five times he received 40 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. One time I was stoned, he says. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys I've faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, Gentiles, in the city, in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brothers, toil, hardship, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, often without food, cold, and often without clothing. Paul had a commission that required sacrifice. So I just want you to know, if you're not a Christian, what you're signing up for. It is a life that's not about you anymore. It is a life that is an emptying of self for the purpose that is greater than yourself. And when you give yourself to it, you are made full and abundant. You're going to become an everyday vessel for the everyday purpose of taking the good news of Jesus to the world, and it will require sacrifice. So you have communion with God, and you have commission for God, and then lastly, you have community with others. Community with others. Living with other Christians is one of the main things that takes place in our lives that brings about God's will in our life other than our own. And you see this in a couple of different places in the text. Look at verse 17. It's very subtle, but it's there. We talked about it in Sunday school today a little bit. Ananias, who did not want to go to Saul, puts his hands on him and he calls him what? Brother. So in the same moment that Saul has communion and commission, Saul instantly has community. But the other instance is back in verse 4 through 6, if you want to look back in the text there, where Jesus reveals himself to Saul. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? He knows that he's Lord. He just doesn't know his name. And Saul says, I'm Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now, what is Jesus saying there? He's saying to Saul that when you persecute the church in Damascus, when you persecute the church in Jerusalem, you are persecuting Me. Now, why is that the case? It's because when you become a Christian, you don't just get saved into a one-on-one relationship with God. You're saved into a body of believers, all of whom are part of Christ's body. We're joined. There's a link. We have a, a common Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying to Saul, I am in every Christian. If you're persecuting them, you are persecuting me. And what this means for you and I, very simply, is that you can't That if you want, uh, what's the way I want to word this? If you want to know Jesus, you're not going just to know him through your own personal communion with him. You're going to have to be deeply involved in a community with other people doing the same thing. There is a whole lot more to Jesus that you will never see anywhere except in a church. There's a lot of Jesus you will never see anywhere unless you are in a relationship with other people doing the same. Okay, so I'm an introvert, (laughs) which means I get a lot of energy by being alone. I am usually very happy in my own mind. I'm not ignoring you. It's just you're literally not there if I could help it. Like, it's not personal. It's It's just where we're happy. It's where we get our energy. But if there's anything that we've learned about the church over the last year, or this week, in which we've all spent so much time just laying low because of the pandemic or because of some freaky ice thing that just happens, if there's anything we've learned, it's the importance of community. Church is a body, not a broadcast, it's no substitute to see what happened or is happening somewhere and to be there. That's just true of any experience. Going to a Cowboys game when they win is so much more fun than watching a Cowboy or a Titan. I'll say Titans because we're in Tennessee. It's so much more important than me. I mean, and that's just the experience. What about actual relationship? What about actual growth? What about actual transformation? We need each other. And when you become a Christian... It's instant. You have community. Theologically, spiritually, it is very true. And it's experienced in the local church. So this passage is both practical and beautiful. There is something for us to do in response to this passage. And there is something beautiful for us to behold. Maybe practical. What are the things that take? This is these are the questions. What are the things that take place in our lives that bring His will about instead of our own? What what takes place initially and in an ongoing way for all this to happen? So we've seen it. It's communion with God. It's a commission for God and community others. So practically speaking, we have to leave here resolved to commune with God in prayer and reading the Bible. That's where God has spoken, and that is where He speaks. Practically speaking, we leave here not as marginally satisfied consumers, but we are commissioned officers on a mission. Practically speaking, we leave here neither independent or codependent on people, but as interdependent family. That's very practical. But then there is something really beautiful to behold. Just think about this. Jesus, the one who had perfect communion with God and he had community with the Father and the Holy Spirit and he was commissioned by the Father to come to us and he was sent to have community with us to teach us how to commune with God and to commission us to invite others into the same. Now that is beautiful. That is beautiful. Let's pray together. Father God, we see something really beautiful and we see something really practical. The the gospel is beautiful. It is incredible that in the Trinity and eternity, you, the Son and the Spirit, in perfect relationship with one another, send the Son on commission to give us the same wrapped up in the Godhead with you in relationship with you through the life, death, and resurrection of the Son. And so we ask that we believe it, that we trust it, that we give our lives to it. And in so doing, we have communion with you, we have community with others, and we live practically on mission for the gospel's sake. Bring this word to bear in our hearts, Lord. Teach us, lead us to obey. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.